You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 53. How well is your business or team tracking towards its goals? Are you getting there? Are you developing skills that are aligned with your mission? Are you using data to inform your choices? Are you measuring the right things? According to the numbers, chances are you said yes to most of those questions. But sadly, the stats also suggest that even if you think you're tracking well in the quantifiable elements of business performance, you're probably not. Stacey Barr is the author of a brand new book called Prove It. She is a performance measurement specialist and she's here to help us understand how to quantifiably prove how well our organizations and teams are performing. Along the way, she'll give us a lowdown on just how bad we typically are when it comes to thinking this way. And we have a giggle about the type of information that often passes for evidence in a lot of organizations. Stacy narrows the complex world of performance measurement down to three personal leadership behaviors and three organization-wide habits that have the power to transform the way we do business. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Stacy Barr. Stacey Barr, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks, David. Stacey, you are a performance measure specialist. What on earth is that? Apart from being a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) It Um, is. Yeah, it's a term I actually made up and Uh I made it up because back when I started my career, there was no name for it. And really what it means is that the thing I focus on, the thing that I spend all of my time learning and experimenting with and creating techniques around and helping people with is how to quantify the uh, results that they want to get through their business. Your book is very aptly named. Your book is called Prove It, and I, I love it. I was thinking about some clever way I could say, hey, is that Stacey Barr? Prove it. Prove that you're Stacey Barr. But I really liked it. And, and there's a quote that you use relatively early in the book. And I'm going to read that for our listeners. And, and then I want to talk to you about what it means to you and how it motivates you. It's something that Carl Sagan noted in his book, Cosmos. If we lived on a planet where nothing ever changed, there would be little to do. There would be nothing to figure out. There would be no impetus for science. And if we lived in an unpredictable world where things changed in random or very complex ways, we would not be able to figure anything out. Again, there would be no such thing as science. But we live in an in-between universe where things change, but according to patterns, rules, or as we call them, laws of nature. Stacey, do those words lie at the heart of what you do and why you do it? I think they do. I really only 
came across that quote again in the last year or so. And when I read it again, because that's from a book that's quite old now, um, when I reread it, it kind of gave me tingles. And hearing you quote it just then gave me tingles as well. I think it really is at the heart of what I do. You know, Carl Sagan talks about science and and really he's talking about science with that quote. He's not talking about measurement per se, but to me, measurement, measuring is a form of science. It's how we find out things about the world that are very, very difficult to find out just by walking around and looking and touching and hearing. We as humans have a bias, natural bias in and filters in the way we take in information and the way we give meaning to it. Uh, what measurement does is kind of take that outside of ourselves and it helps us have more objectivity, less bias and more thoroughness to some extent in uh, what we can learn about the world around us. And I'm particularly interested, of course, in this concept of measurement in business and organisations. I remember reading in, in that great book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman, where he said that we are actually intuitively, we humans, very bad at guessing quantifiable numbers around things. If if we leave it up to our intu- intuition and what we just absorb through our, as you say, our bias, we actually come up with the wrong answer more often than not when we try and put put numbers on things. Hey, Stacey, you got started in this world a long time ago when you were an evaluator for the Australian Business Excellence Awards. You noticed that an organization's ability to engage in evidence-based thinking was, out of all the criteria, very much the weakest link. It was. It really was. The interesting thing about how measurement and evidence weaves through business excellence frameworks like the Australian Business Excellence Awards and Baldridge and EFQM over in Europe. Measurement weaves through that in a, in a number of ways. One is it's a whole category unto itself. You know, how do you prove that you're mm. getting the business results that you wanted? But also in every other category, the customer category, the, the strategy one, the, the one about process, the one about people, et cetera, there's a measurement inherently in there that you have to be able to show that you are using measurement to monitor the important things about that, the important things about how processes work or the important things about how people are engaged and how they're managed. So that was really why I became an evaluator because they noticed that that was a a struggle and they wanted people that had the skills to be able to add, I guess, to the experience that organisations have when they go through the awards process because it's not just an award. It's almost like a a consulting engagement because yeah. all the evaluators offer such brilliant advice and wow. and support to the organization. So yeah, they were looking for somebody and I, I thought, yes, I'd love to do that. So before we get into how we can ensure our organization is making evidence-based decisions, if we're pretty bad at it and most organizations don't do it well, what does currently drive our decision making? What do leaders think about when they're when they're making these important calls? I think that experience is probably what they fall back onto most in making decisions. Now, look, leaders don't completely avoid data when they're no, making decisions, no. just, you know, not in this day and age, but I don't think they are choosing the right data and I don't think they know how to look at it in the right way. I really liked something I read that you wrote, something of yours, that where you talked about the fact that evidence doesn't drive our decisions at the moment, but more often than not, it is things like gut feel, hearsay, tradition, or whim. And when I wrote, read that line, that just resonated so strongly with me. You know, we've all been in meetings where 
people on the outside probably think we're making a very scientific meeting, making a very scientific decision when we go out and deliver our decision and things start to get done. But inside the meeting, it's a whole lot of, oh, what about this? What about that? And I've seen this happen and I reckon and all that kind of stuff is a very unscientific approach. It is. And look, sometimes it's deliberate, but I think that's sometimes. I think often it's you just don't know another way. Mm. I don't know if you were like this, David, when you were in in school um, or high school, if you remember just how unpopular mathematics was. (laughs) It really wasn't the favourite subject. I topped my school in mathematics and I was in a class of, uh, of about five people that did advanced maths. And then I went on to study it at university and the classes were just as small. You know, biology had 300 students and pure maths had five. It's <laughs> not a popular why. topic. No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But people think they're not good at it. They're not good with numbers. I'm not a numbers person. Yeah. Uh, and maybe deliberately, maybe probably more likely not deliberately, they kind of discount the value of numbers because of that, that feeling, that discomfort with it. So I think a lot of that hearsay and gut feel and whim and, and opinion and all of that that does drive decision making is simply is simply there because we don't have as a society a well developed relationship with numbers. So we're not naturally good at it. A lot of us think that we're just not good at numbers because we didn't enjoy maths at school. We're surrounded within organisations by a culture that makes it okay to make decisions on gut feel or hearsay, tradition, whim, hope or fear, what other organisations seem to be doing, what senior leaders have seen work in a place Mm -hmm. before, all those kind of dearly held ideologies. And I've read where you said if doctors practised medicine the way many companies practise management, there'd be far more sick and dead people and many more doctors would be in jail. Exactly. That was um, that was a quote by uh, Pfeffer and Sutton from their book. Oh, good grief. The title of it's just left my mind. Hard Facts, Dangerous Half-Truths, and Total Nonsense. It's yes. a brilliant book. <laughs> Long title, which is always hard to remember. It's a mouthful of a title, isn't it? It is, it is, but it really, it really, really lands the point. Leaders and just decision, decision makers in general in organisations are not going to be able to and, and are already feeling this. They're not going to be able to rely on all those commonly accepted ways of making decisions because, you know, regulators, governments, customers, lobby groups, all kinds of people in this day and age are demanding more transparency of organisations and businesses and the leaders are going to find themselves already finding themselves in a bit of a sticky spot where they need to prove it. They need to provide objective evidence about how well they're uh, using their resources, how well they're turning those resources into value for their customers and stakeholders. And and, uh, they're not really able to do it as quickly as I think the world's demanding because of the, those, all of those things you mentioned before, David, the hearsay and the, the gut feel. It's too comfortable and they don't know another way. They don't want to be pushed outside of those that comfort zone. Hey, Stacey, my listeners will know I'm about to do this. I do this to every guest because I'm a bit of a political junkie, I think. I like to sit on the sidelines and throw cans. So tell me, how well do our political leaders make decisions based on evidence? And if they do it well or not, does that impact the way leaders and organizations do their thing? Because they say that see that done in those most what shall we say, high-profile leadership positions? I think that politicians could certainly use data and evidence much better than they do. I Lee Sales, 
on 7.30, I think it was a few months ago now, she was interviewing our Prime Minister about this, about how he would, what KPIs he was using to monitor the impact of his policy and the changes that he wanted to make in his term in government. And his response was, well, we will be we will be held accountable to implementing our projects and to delivering on the things that we said we would do. And that is a pattern of response to such a question that I hear a lot, not just in politics, but also in any organizations that I'm consulting to, is this almost like, like they're not aware of it, but they have this belief that action is evidence of results. Yeah. If we do stuff, that surely that must mean we've made the difference <laughs> that we wanted to make. Yeah, whether and that's it benefits a society thing. or not. Yeah, that's right. So I think it's it's poorly done just mm. about everywhere. Yeah. And so do you think that we're seeing that unconscious bias that Malcolm Turnbull demonstrated in that example that just doing something is good? It doesn't actually have to benefit society. It's just fulfilling the promises they made, getting projects started. That's leadership. Do you think that impacts leaders in organizations? Because he is the highest profile leader in the country. I don't know if it directly impacts them. And you know what, David, I'm not sure which is the chicken and which is the Mm, egg. Right. I don't know that people would look necessarily to Malcolm Turnbull as a model for how to measure organisational success. <laughs> Probably um, not. I'm sure when they look at him, they're thinking lots of other things, but <laughs> it is certainly a, a habit that's endemic in society that no matter whether they're public sector or private sector or what industry they're from, or quite frankly, David, what part of the world they're from. I mean, we're in Australia, but I find this pattern everywhere over the planet, wherever I go. It's just really easy to prove that you did something as opposed to proving that you made a change or you had an impact or something is now better than it was before as a result of your action, of, of your investment of time and energy and money. Taking the easy option. And of course, our politicians on all sides of politics are far more interested generally in getting elected at the next election than they are in actually contributing something to make the community better. I, uh, I'll leave politics there because we're going to get onto this positive stuff, Stacey. We've talked about why we're so bad at it, our tendency away from numbers, the fact that we see action as the measure of success rather than outcomes as the measure of success. Now, you have developed a unique model that allows us to quantifiably prove how well our organization is performing. You say by just three personal leadership habits and three organization-wide habits that we can transform our organizations into the powerhouse we know it should be. Take it away, Stacey. What are those three behaviors? Yes, indeed. This, To me, this kind of a change is about creating a high-performance culture in an organization. What typically happens is we measure people, hoping that that will make people perform, but I think we have to flip that around 180 degrees We've got to use measurement in a way that helps the culture shift so that everybody can perform and processes can perform. And it starts with the leaders. So they've really got to embrace these first three habits and master them so that they set the example for the rest of the organization. Because we all know that what the leaders do, everybody else will do, no matter what the leaders mm-hmm. say. Yep. The first habit that leaders really need to master is, I, I just call it direction. And it's fundamentally about the way they write their strategic goals, the way they write their mission and vision statements. And there are some pretty big problems with the way that's done. But in a nutshell, direction's not clear enough. It's not clear enough for people to really understand what it means. It's not clear enough for them to to see how they would contribute to it. And the biggest culprit is weasel words. 
So it's it's pretty good when you when you say we need direction, we need a strategy that makes sense. That's pretty clear. We get that. But the thing is, the thing that you've observed is we're actually not no. as good at that as we think we are. What's some examples that you see regularly where an organization thinks they've got this shining strategy, a clear direction, when really they've missed the mark? It's when it is full of weasel words. It looks glossy and professional, and it's all the language that managers are comfortable with, efficiency, effectiveness, productivity, reliability, quality, credibility, capacity, sustainability. We could go on forever. There's heaps of those sorts of words, but their strategic plans are just saturated with them. And those words are weasel words because they don't have a single clear meaning to everybody. And if your strategy doesn't have a single clear meaning to everybody, how can it really be a direction? It's, you know, everybody's going to draw their own interpretation and scatter. They're going to do what they think it means or, or they'll make up a meaning because they're too scared to ask the leaders what it actually means because right. that would be a dumb question. Yeah, of course. And, and we get a mess. No direction. So what is a good strategy? Is it something, obviously, that's not full of weasel words? It's full of straight shooting, clear talk that everyone can understand. Mm-hmm. It's unambiguous. Is that what a good strategy is? Exactly. And I, I use the, the benchmark of would a 10-year-old understand it? Right. What is a good one? Of companies that we know of, what's a good, clear strategy that we've all heard of that's clicked for us all? So a good example from the not-for-profit sector, for example, is to prevent cruelty to animals by actively promoting their care and protection. And it's so you, clear, isn't it? There's no weasel yeah. words there. You know exactly what that organisation does. You know exactly. Yeah, that's the RSPCA. It's simple as that. Yeah. So yeah. they know exactly what they're about and they write – in this case, it's a mission statement, but we're mm. talking mission, vision, yeah. or or goals. They need to be written in that kind of language, and a ten year old would understand that. Day. Yeah, absolutely. And, and my, most more importantly, when a ten year old saw that organisation in action, they'd be able to match them back to that mission statement. They'd be like, "Yeah, that's exactly what you would do. That's exactly what you would say you do." Yeah, exactly, precisely. Another one is uh, from the the for profit sector is to grow a profitable airline where people love to fly and where people love to work. That's nice and clear too. That's Virgin Atlantic. Like you may not guess it's exactly that airline, but you can tell (laughs) it's an airline because they say it. But also they make it really clear what they're about. They're about being profitable um, so they can be around for a long time. They're about people loving to fly with them and people loving to work for them. So it's nice and straightforward. Hey, I know you wouldn't do this, so I'm going to give a bad one. It's from your book. Listeners, have a guess to see. So this is a bad one. Stacey's just given us some good ones. An example of weasel words where the mission or the strategy statement does not match the company. To refresh the world, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness, to create value and make a difference. That's the mission statement of this company. And I wonder how many of you have just guessed that that is the Coca-Cola company. That's a great example of an organization that has just not got it clear. If you work for that organization and you were driving or striving every day to achieve that, you would think, oh, that's not what we do. We create a really sugary drink. I don't see that there. <laughs> oh, that's true. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they can be a world away the way that organizations will write their goals. And unfortunately, it's much harder to find an organization that writes a very clear everyday language, 10-year-old would understand it kind of goal. In fact, David, um, this you won't know because it's not in the book, but it's something I did a couple of weeks ago was 
Googled for a strategic plan in Australian websites and took the first 50 results that came up to have a look and just see, you know, are these people writing clear goals and are they measuring them well? And out of all of them, the 50, one had clear goals with measures that actually were evidence of the goals and none of the others did. It absolutely stunned me. So, Stacey, three behaviours, we've got the first one nailed, direction. We've got to have a strategy that tells us what we're doing, no weasel words. What's number two? Number two is evidence, which is really the central part of this idea of leadership. (laughs) Evidence is the habit, the practice of writing measures for your goals that actually tell you about your goals and not something else. Quantitative measures, measures that you have reached the goal. So these two are linked, obviously. We've got a clear strategy statement and then the measures are things that we're measuring in a quantifiable way that are extracted exactly from our strategy statement. That's exactly right. And the way that we do that is first decide, you know, if this goal is happening, how would we recognize that in reality? What would we see? What would we hear? What would we be able to touch? You know, what what would be the differences that would convince us that the goal was being achieved? And measures are not, not much more than a way to quantify the strongest of that evidence. So if we are the RSPCA and we've said that our mission is to prevent cruelty to animals by actively promoting their care and protection, it's pretty clear what we're measuring, right? We're measuring statistics through the community where animals have been treated cruelly or number of animals that have been abandoned, things like that. There's so many, or not so many, there's some really obvious measures that we'd put in place if that's our strategy. Absolutely. Now, that particular statement's got several different results wrapped up in it, as you highlighted, David. So there would be a, a few different measures that they would use to you know, tell them about that entire goal. So what are, the, what are some of the common mistakes that people make? Because I know we talked about earlier, organisations aren't ignoring numbers. They think they're doing a good job in a lot of ways with numbers. What are some of the common mistakes that you see when organisations or leaders are trying to use evidence but don't quite get it right? One is where they, they quantify the simple things, like the stuff that they've already got data for. So the RSPCA, if they were using a really lame measure, they would probably just count because part of what they want to do is promote the awareness of the care of animals. So a really lame measure of that would be how many pamphlets did they yeah, send out, right. how many phone calls did yeah. they make. Yeah, okay. That's, ag- that, that's, that's like you said about Malcolm Turbill, that's activity, not impact. Yeah, although it can be even worse than that. And people will, and this is another mistake people make with numbers, is they're not actually using numbers. They're using what we call a milestone. So in project management, we have milestones. You know, we'll have we'll have the beta phase ready by this particular date, and then then we'll have it tested out in the marketplace by this date. And those are milestones. They're saying that a particular thing will be done by a particular point in time. And people think they are performance measures and they're not. So for the RSPCA, it would be a lame measure for them uh, would be, We've implemented our TV uh, How to Care for Animals campaign by the end of the year. That's a milestone, not a measurement. Yep. Awesome. All right. So direction and evidence that measures the elements of our direction. What is the third leadership behavior? It's what we do with the measures, which is execution. And a lot of people in in bigger organizations probably talk more about strategy execution than in smaller organizations, but it's basically implementing your, your direction making your goals reality by doing projects or improvement programs or whatever uh, you need to make the changes happen. Because just having a goal doesn't make it happen and just measuring it doesn't necessarily make it happen either. We need to do something. And the really important thing about execution is that it has high leverage and not just 
compensating for for poor performance, but really does elevate performance by changing the the underlying system. What do you mean when you say that execution has high leverage? When we make the change, we want the change to be big and we want it to stick. Right. So let me give you an example. Imagine that there is a, and this is actually, you don't have to imagine it because it's real, but it happened a while (laughs) ago, a sugar system in the rail network where trains take sugar from the sugar mills to the port to be exported. And the sugar mill says, hey, we've got a lot more production coming up. We don't think you're going to be able to keep up with it to the railway, they say this. And the railway in response goes, oh my goodness, we're going to have to make a change. We need to increase our sugar throughput. So what are we going to do? And what they'll think of doing is, well, what do you think, David? What do you think they would consider doing? I don't know, bring more trains on board, I suppose? Yeah, buy more rolling stock, more wagons, more locomotives. And that is the solution they thought was going to work. But it's not a high leverage solution because they have to buy all of that rolling stock and they have the ongoing decision, cost David. then of yeah, <laughs> David, sorry. <laughs> Bad strategic <laughs> they decision. Main, they have to maintain it. They've got an ongoing cost for that. They've got to get more crews to to crew the trains. And that's an ongoing cost. And so it's not really a high leverage solution because even though they might increase their sugar throughput, they've added a lot more cost and complexity yeah. to their system. But the actual solution they ended up going with was not that at all. They didn't have to buy a single wagon or a single locomotive. They just changed the way they used what they already had. They made their trains shorter. They took them off schedule and ran them continuously around the sugar loop. And they managed to increase throughput and continue to increase throughput as the sugar production ramped up over the years without adding costs. And in fact, because they simplified the system, they reduced costs. And that's a high leverage solution. They squeezed more out of the assets that they have. They kind of, well, yeah, in a sense, but they didn't put the assets they had under any undue stress. There were no negative consequences of this. What they did was they elevated constraints. They unconstrained performance that was being held down by inappropriate policies, by scheduling systems that really were out of date. And, you know, they had the potential in there. They just had to take the shackles off it. If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll get things moving. So, Stacey, your three leadership behaviours, direction, evidence and execution, look, I love them, but they're not exactly rocket science, are they? No one is going to be surprised to hear that they're the things you need to get right If it's so obvious and people like you are talking about it in the work that you do, why do organizations have such difficulty doing it? What are the barriers? One of the barriers, I think, is not seeing the interaction between those three things and how important that interaction is. Yeah. For example, they'll create the direction and then as an afterthought, they'll think, oh, we should probably measure that. Our planning template had a KPI column. I guess we should put something (laughs) in Fill that in. Yeah. And the execution is rarely targeted at the measures and trying to get them to improve. And it's more just, you know, what did we feel like doing? What did we think was a good project? Oh, that company over there did that project. That could be fun for us to do. Yeah. So there's not that link between execution and evidence either. So that's one thing is, is not understanding the interplay of those three things. But another reason why they're not done well, and you're right, they aren't rocket science. They're pretty obvious, particularly in hindsight, but they're not done well. 
there are some bad habits that are wrapped up in the way we set goals, like we talked about weasel words. There are bad habits wrapped up in the way we set measures, like trivial measures or using milestones that aren't, aren't even measures to start with. And there are some bad habits wrapped up in execution too, where we just treat symptoms. We just create strategic initiatives or improvement projects that really only treat the symptoms by throwing more staff at a, a problem of not getting through a backlog of work rather than looking at the design of the system underneath and realising the backlog's there because of a root cause that happens somewhere else in the organisation that's causing problems. And if it got fixed, those problems wouldn't be there to create a backlog. Something that you said before reminded me of what's going on at the moment in southeast Queensland where we are both from with the glut of apartments coming into the market. You talked about an organisation making a decision because they see other organisations doing it too. I always say when, you know, if, if you know Brisbane listeners, you drive through places like Tenerife and New Farm and even out mm. through the suburbs, um, you know, just the western suburbs, Tawong and Indrapilly or wherever you drive in Brisbane and the Gold Coast, mind you, there are apartments coming up everywhere. And I, and you know, of course, now they're talking about a glut. They're talk- I know, uh, you know, of friends who have bought an apartment off the plan five or six years ago and have just sold it for less than they paid for it five or six years ago. It's crazy stuff. And it seems on the surface that a whole bunch of developers have just done what other developers are doing and then they've all just copied each other and then they sort of look, you know, shrug and go, oh, no, now it's all worth less than we thought it was going to be worth. I assumed that when you're investing tens of million dollars into a building project, you're doing your homework and getting your sums right. But it seems as though they're not. It does seem that way and that blood of apartments is, is quite a worry, really. I feel so sorry for all these developers. It kind of leads to another what you've said, David, kind of leads to another thing that people get wrong with this whole direction evidence execution thing is the time frame because the time frame has a really important role in the apartment glut as well because these are very big decisions, like you say. They're very big decisions mm. up front, mm. but they don't pay themselves back for a very long time either, years and years before we, you know, they can get a really good return on their investment. So we tend to, as human animals, be very focused on short-term thinking, short-term decisions, short-term results, and we're not thinking about that long-term. So I think maybe they did their homework of sorts, David, but I don't know that they did the kind of homework about thinking of those, those dynamics that can only be seen when you look far enough ahead. The type of homework that people like me would assume you would do if you're about to invest tens of millions of dollars, but maybe that's just not the way it works. All right, so there are three leadership behaviours. What are the three organisation habits that you speak of? These three habits are what the leaders will need to inspire and support. And I I like the phrase, hold the space for. Mm -hmm allow to happen and give enough authority um, down through the ranks to allow these to happen. Because what what this does is it means the three organisational habits, which are decision, action and learning, they are really the rest of the organisation practising evidence-based management or evidence-based leadership as well. The decision habit is about ownership. It's about how we can help everybody throughout the organisation not just understand the strategic direction, but more importantly, understand their contribution to it. And in some organisations, that's called line of sight. It means that an employee can turn up to work knowing that she hasn't just turned up to work to get through some paperwork, tick off some stuff and go to some meetings. She's turned up to work because what she does is 
get uh, policies about how the organisation purchases stuff so clear and so practical and so useful that all of her colleagues inside the organisation will welcome it and think, wow, this is really helping me with my purchasing decisions and now I'm able to spend less money and stop wasting money on buying stuff and that's going to help the whole organisation's costs come down. So she would have line of sight if she had that story to link her goals, yeah. her reason for turning up to work each day through to the corporate strategy. Uh, this gives people an opportunity to understand the impact they're having across the organisation with the work that they do. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's decision. Yes. All right. Good. Then once, once we have that, once we have decision, we have people who have an ownership of their contribution to the strategy. And because strategy is about change, it's about improvement, it means that they will have a piece likely that they need to change and improve and therefore they will have a local goal or, or and usually these goals sort of are at, at team level. The team will have a goal and to achieve that goal, generally they're closing some kind of performance gap. You know, it, it might be that at the moment only 5% of the organisation are using the purchasing policy, but they want 80% of the organisation to be using the purchasing policy because, that, you know, that's how the costs come down is when everyone's buying a lot more smartly or cleverly than they have been. So there's a performance gap. They've got to get from 5% to 80% of people using the purchasing policy. So action is about to close that performance gap, what must we really focus on to get the change to happen? Now, probably not just getting demanding everybody do it because that never gets us anywhere. It's about finding out why people aren't using the policy and really trying to get to the, the crux of it and then and then change it. And maybe they're not using it because they don't know it exists or maybe they're not using it because there's a limitation in it that stops them from being able to handle a particular situation. And if the procurement team knew about that, they'd be able to do something about it, fix it and increase the usage of it and close that performance gap. All That's right. what action's all about. All right. I like it. And just so we can remind the listeners as we go along, so decision, there's there's three organization-wide habits. There's one decision, and that, that generates ownership within individuals about their strategic direction. They own that direction. The second is action, which is designed to close performance gap. It, it creates local goals. And the third, Stacey, have, have I got that right, by the way? Is that the right language around those first two? Yeah, well put. Awesome. I'm, I'm taking notes. I am cheating. <laughs> You're cheating well. <laughs> <laughs> and what's number three? So learning is number three. And I think this is probably one that many organizations don't even think about. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said before, direction, evidence, execution, they're all quite obvious and they're not rocket science. Decision and action are the same. We want people to have ownership of their contribution to strategy and we want them to take action to improve performance. But learning is not really given much attention. And learning, I'm not talking about individual learning. I'm not talking about people going to a training course and getting some skills. I'm talking about organizational learning. Right. And that is how do we as an organization capture knowledge about what kinds of things work for us when we try to close performance gaps and what kinds of things don't work? And the method for exploring that is through business experiments. Right. So the idea is that we treat any kind of change we make in an organization as an experiment and be far more interested in getting a result from the experiment than we are interested in whether the result was positive or negative. So being more interested in getting a result that's that we can learn from and less interested in whether the result was what we wanted or what we didn't want. Now you've you know of Mythbusters, David, surely. Mm-hmm, I do. 
So Adam Savage is is one of the Mythbusters, and this is one of his passions. And I'm sure I've heard in one of his episodes where he said exactly that. I don't care what result we get. I just want to get a result. Yeah. And he just loves to learn. I want to find can, the truth and learn. Indeed, indeed. There shouldn't be a focus on failure. It should be a focus on feedback. While ever we are learning from business experiments, we're not failing. You're absolutely right when you say all the others are kind of obvious and they're probably the things that leaders feel guilty about when they don't do them because they know they should. And we've talked about mm-hmm. some of the common barriers. But that last one, that organization-wide learning. So when you put things in place to close performance gaps, when you have local goals and strategies or techniques to achieve those goals, that you treat it like an experiment. We had this problem, so we implemented Project A, and it had this result. What can we learn from that? We don't do that well in organizations, and mainly because it's not acceptable to fail. And if you put something in place... It comes so naturally in so many organizations to put a spin around it, to suggest that it's been more successful than it really has been. And people expect you to put a spin around things. People are normally quite shocked when you just lay the truth out before them. They sure are. They sure are. Why are we so bad at that, Stacey? Why don't the numbers help us with that qualitative or subjective behavior? When you were sort of describing that, David, this I guess it's a cliche, just came to my mind. Do you remember that cliche, don't just stand there, do something? Yeah. I think there's too much of that in our culture. There's too much of that in human psyche. I think what we need to do is instead say, don't just do something, stand there. Think about it. Yeah, think about it. Allow a little bit of time to, to do an experiment before you spend a bazillion dollars on a massive rollout project that ends up not working. Yeah, I know you're not talking about it, but it seems as though there you're almost exclusively talking about politics at every level from any party, just doing something as if that's the answer to it, rather than thinking, having a decent debate and conversation about it, weighing up all the evidence, and then trying to put in place some actions that are actually going to solve the problem and bring some benefit to the community. I know you weren't talking about that. You're talking about organizations where the same problem occurs, but It sounds like you could be talking about leadership from so many different industries. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. What you've said, it hits the nail on the head. Stacey, one of the things I read in your book that I found really interesting was that you said evidence-based leadership is the application of evidence-based management at the most strategic level in an organization. So you talk about Mm -hmm. management being at a a getting stuff done level and leadership being at the strategic level. I I found that so interesting because in my little world as a a leadership consultant, we talk about the difference between leadership and management and we say things like you manage the work and you lead people. But you see a slightly different distinction. I do see a slightly different distinction. To me, and I do talk about this in the book too, that evidence-based leadership is not about how to lead. It's not about the, mm. the techniques and the skills you have to lead people. It's about what to lead. And I don't think that's ever talked about much. The senior leadership team of an organization, the ones we call the leaders, not the managers, mm-hmm. they are responsible for the results of the organization. They're responsible for the culture of the organization. And what they're leading is not just people, but they're leading the execution of that direction. You know, they're leading their organization to be able to say, hey, this is the impact we wanted to have. And here we are proving that that's the impact we did have. 
that only rests with the leaders. So that distinction is a little different. It's not inconsistent, though, because leaders still need to be leaders of people. Mm -hmm. They also need to be leaders of impact of the organisation, fulfilling its purpose and achieving its, its, its vision. In your definitions there, it's almost the higher up in the organization you are, the closer you are to designing the overall strategy, the more leader you are. For sure. Wow. Okay, cool. I like it. All right, Stacey. Now, I have finished grilling you except for the four questions I always end with. Are you ready for them? I'm ready. All right. (laughs) Stacey Barr, tell me about the Saturday night you would most look forward to. Is it a big party with lots of people you know? or a quiet dinner with your closest friends? Do you know what? It's neither. Does it have to be one no, or the other? That's, what, out of those two, what would you most look forward to? Out of those two, the mm-hmm. dinner with friends. I mean, I'm an introvert. Okay. I'd much rather have an intimate conversation with somebody. You're on to me, um, but- you know. That's what I'm testing there. <laughs> I'm doing an MBTI on you, by the way. A very okay. rough and ready one. Okay, question number two. It is an intelligence test, I tell some of my guests, because they always want a third option, these guests. And I say very clearly, which one would you most look forward to? All right, number two, are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming? Caught daydreaming. Really? Very good. What about this? Are you a slave to rational thought or do you make decisions based on emotion? Rational thought would be my pick out of those two, yeah. All right. And very last question. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to plan the route in advance, know exactly where you're going, or do you just like to get in the car and drive? Oh, oh, this is a hard one. I want to say it depends. <laughs> I think I'd like to just get in the car and drive. But how would That's you the f- mood I'm in today. <laughs> and how would you feel about that if you just got in the car and drive? Free. Oh, good. Excellent. Stacey Barth, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks, David. That was great. Thank you so much for um, for giving me the chance to share this. It's like we've discussed, it's not a topic that a lot of people love, but it's a topic everybody should care about because it has such a big impact in our world. Awesome. Thank you, Stacey. That was Stacey Barr. How about it, hey? Three leadership behaviours, direction, evidence and execution, and three organisation habits, decision, action and learning. So simple, so believable, but apparently so hard to actually do. I had to laugh when we talked about the types of things that usually guide our decision-making at work. Gut feel, hearsay, tradition or whim, hope or fear, what others seem to be doing, and what senior leaders have seen work before. It's only funny because I've seen it, as I'm sure have you, so many times before. And when thinking about it in the context of performance measurement, it's just so dumb. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Stacey on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. You can connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the principles and theory of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.